listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership. Not long ago, I was in a mono-generational church, people roughly the same age, a little bit older than I was, and I was filling in. I was doing some pulpit supply for them. The first thing I noticed when I looked around was that there's not a lot of people of different age groups here, a lot of the same age. And the second thing I noticed whenever we prayed was that they prayed for their children and grandchildren. This was so impactful to me because I saw here's a mono-generational church, but has a desire, at least in their prayers, to reach another generation. Today's podcast, we're talking about preaching to multiple generations. No doubt some of our listeners find themselves in a place where they are preaching to one generation. Maybe they're preaching to one generation because that's who's in their church. Maybe they're preaching to one generation because they've grown comfortable in that kind of proclamation. Today's guest is going to help us to get out of that rut. Today's guest is going to help us to see the potential of preaching across generations and provide some practical guides in how we can do that. Today's guest is Dr. Daryl Hall. Dr. Hall is the author of Speaking Across Generations, Messages That Satisfy Boomers, Xers, Millennials, Gen Z, and Beyond. It is full of generational science, research that emerges from different generations and how they interact what their values and language is. Dr. Hall says that each generation has its own language in which it can hear the gospel. Man, when I first started going through this text and entertaining this idea, I was kind of struck by how much work it would be. But Dr. Hall, Pastor Daryl, really is a guide through that hard work. And on the other end of hard work, there's so often opportunity. In today's episode, you're gonna hear some reflections on generational science. You're gonna hear some reflections on preaching, but beyond and overarching all of that, you are going to hear a person who is filled with hope and who is passionate about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only by him, but who is also passionate about you preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether you're an ordained minister behind a pulpit, whether you're a person on the other end of a screen, whether you're a person who is not involved in church leadership, you are the church and you are called to preach. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor, and then enjoy the podcast. We are Wesley, and you belong here. I'm Gloria Zikiwe, and I am Wesley. My name is Chris, and guess what? I am Wesley. I'm Ryan Wagers, and I am Wesley. My name is Julius White, and I am Wesley. My name is Jen Peterson, and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt, and I am Wesley. I am Wayne Brown, and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr, and I belong here. You belong here, too, because we are Wesley. Welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast, Dr. Hall. It's great to have you with us. Hey, Aaron. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing just well. Thank you for asking me. I always get energized by these conversations and I am anticipating an energetic and a lively conversation here too. So I'm doing, I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Awesome. Awesome. Speaking across generations, messages that satisfy boomers, Xers, millennials, Gen Z, and beyond. It's your new book. It's published by InterVarsity Press. Let me start maybe just with a broad question. Why should we care about multi-generational churches? So somebody's saying, well, why should I care about preaching to all those generations at the same time? How would you answer them? Oh, what a great question. I think that for those of us who sense a call to serve the local church in any capacity of leadership, we should obviously care about the church today reflecting God's original New Testament design, as well as the church today being able to minister in the complex, you know, society and world that we live in. And so 
where those two roles intersect is where I think we care about a lot of things. And for me, uh, having an intergenerational church is one of the major points of emphasis at that intersection. When we look biblically, we notice certain metaphors like body of Christ, family of God. These metaphors paint for us pictures of what the New Testament church was to be like. And so the concept of family of God or of Paul telling Titus, relate to older men as fathers, younger women, as sisters, older women, as you would a mother. There are filial terms being used, you know, son of God, children of God, family of God. These New Testament metaphors reflect one of the phenomenons of the church. And that is that there is an intergenerational interconnectivity <laughs> in the family of God. And that was written into his design. I think from a cultural standpoint, the world is becoming more complex sociologically. And we have so much at our fingertips as it relates to generational intelligence that non-gospel-centered organizations, organizations without the cross and resurrection as its mission are leaning on and leveraging all this generational intelligence to become more profitable, increase their bottom lines and promote their agendas. And so why would we as sons of light not be as shrewd as the sons of darkness? If Amazon can increase its bottom line through a pandemic because of the generational science it's leveraging against the millennial generation's buying tendencies, I think the church too should educate ourselves and broaden what we care about to also include how the generations are unique and, uh, and how they relate to one another. One of the things you affirm in the book is that anybody can learn the generational science. Anybody can learn how to communicate and to relate across generational lines. And then you, what really shines through is the emphasis where you say, if they care to, right? It's going to be work. Some mm -hmm. people maybe do this more naturally than others, but everybody's got to work at it. Everybody's got to have mm -hmm. a sense of care to grow in this. I've preached in multi-generational churches and I've preached in some mono-generational churches where it's like, Everybody just kind of grew old together and people that weren't part of that generation just gradually self-selected out. And here is one of the interesting things about not all, but almost all of monogenerational churches is they still pray for other generations, right? They are praying for their children. They are praying for their grandchildren. So there's a sense of care that they have for other generations. And part of me is like, well, how can we let God answer those prayers? And I think that you've put your finger on one of the, the really hot spots of this is, well, we can care for other generations by preaching in a way that preaches across generations. So let me let me bring the question back to you and let you keep talking about what you've learned. What happens when you aren't intentional about preaching across generations? It's amazing that you bring out this uh, this tension because my friend Hayden Shaw, who also writes about and with generational intelligence and in books like Generational IQ, he wrote the foreword for my book, and Hayden and I disagree. On this point, Hayden's point is, is that churches should make a choice of whether or not they're going to be monogenerational or intergenerational and be committed to that choice. He also believes that it's not possible or is not a worthy effort for churches to exert the energy it would require to become intergenerational. And him and I have had, you know, a few private back and forth about it. And even when he agreed to do my forward, he appreciated my willingness to publicly <laughs> you know, disagree with him, you know, in his published work. What happens when we do not preach across generations is we effectively display a bias against what we claim to be. 
Meaning, if we are a mono-generational church, let's say a, a, a church of, uh, of older boomers, and we see ourselves aging out of not just per se the prime of our lives from a physical standpoint, but from a, a lifespan standpoint, we're on the back end of things. But we care about this local church that we are a part of. We sense this local church is a part of God's universal church. And what we've done, we want to be able to pass it on. Yet we do not make the necessary changes that we can to ensure that handoff to the next generation or a few generations. I think then we display in our actions a bias, a bias against what we claim to be. Meaning we say we're loving, we say we care about the generations, but our actions don't align with those words. And in that sense, actions uh, in, the, in, the, in the words of the cliche speak louder than words. When we don't preach across generations, what we're saying is we don't value the generations we're not reaching enough to adjust our approach in order to reach them where they are. Instead, we put the onus of responsibility on them to hear how we speak instead of the responsibility on us to speak how they hear. We no longer see ourselves as missionary to this lost generation or this generation we're not reaching. We, we, don't, we don't position ourselves as servants of missionary too. And we don't honor them by acknowledging and affirming that their language and generational peculiarities and their cultural uniquenesses are just as valid as ours. So we functionally act against the love we claim to have when our actions don't, um, don't challenge us to speak their language. Yeah, there really is a, a missional challenge. There's a missional theology mm -hmm. that's coming through if someone is intent on studying scripture, but isn't as intent, or at least, you know, to a certain extent, intent on studying their culture, studying the, the generations, studying the makeup of not just the church that they're preaching to, but the community they're trying to preach to. Who, who would God be bringing in? How can they be interfacing, interacting in light of the scripture that they're so often committed to? How can they interact between the scripture and their audience or potential audience? So one of the things that shines through in the book is that you think that the good news should be, should be committed to different generations. That's that's how the book is made up. Different chapters address communicating good news to, to different generations. I'm imagining somebody saying like, you know, Dr. Holly, I appreciate you doing that work, but I'm just, I'm committed to preaching the Bible. You know, the, the gospel doesn't change. The gospel is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, just like our Lord is. Why would you say the good news maybe sounds differently at different times, or it sounds differently to different generations? How would you answer that person? This is not a hypothetical. I've, I've heard this stated, you know, in response to my research and my book. And I understand, particularly from a preacher who has a style that appears to be working, they've seen some fruit, and they are at a place in their, their journey or their arc of ministry, you know, where they're comfortable. And what they're doing and what they have been doing seems to be working. I think my book is searching for the preachers who are searching for it, meaning those who understand that there's something missing and they're trying to tweak. They just don't know what to tweak to increase, you know, their effectiveness in reaching the generations or to challenge themselves to not accept what has become their status quo. To answer your question, though, as it relates to what would I say to the person? who would make that assertion, I would say that, okay, are you fruitful? Yes. Is what you've been doing working? Perhaps. But do you have any gnawing feeling, any 
in your private time between you and the Lord, is there any gnawing discomfort about or restlessness about who you're not reaching? I think that sometimes we can focus on our style, our preferences. Hey, I just want to preach the Bible. The gospel doesn't change. But we miss that the moment I begin to articulate the Bible, I do so using rhetoric that it it is impossible for me. You know, I'm a millennial. I'm male. I'm black. I'm 36. I'm from the southeast region of the United States in Atlanta, Georgia. All of these lenses come into play automatically as soon as I begin to write a sermon about scripture. When we say we just preach the Bible, that doesn't mean we just get up, read scripture in our favorite version and sit down as Jesus did, you know, uh, in the book of Isaiah and Luke chapter four. No, what it means is I get up, read a passage, and then I sermonize that passage. And any sermon is shaped automatically by the lenses rhetoric, perspectives, and all these layers that make up the person who's preaching it. So for the person who says, hey, I just preached the Bible, I just preached the gospel, and the gospel doesn't change, I would challenge them that you do preach the Bible and the gospel, but you preach it in a way that is that is unique to you based on how you've been shaped in these various you know, spheres of culture and, and generational culture being one of those. My challenge to them would be this. If English is your primary language, That means that when you write sermons, if you're preaching to an English-speaking people and your primary language is is English, even if you're bilingual, the minute you begin to write that sermon in English, thinking of who you're going to be preaching to, and the minute you preach it, you have just used English as a tool, a rhetorical tool to help explain and express the Bible. That's because you see English, rightfully, as a language that speaks to people of a certain people group. My argument would be that generations are people groups in the same way that that ethnicities can be, so can generations. Meaning if we use this this unifying definition of a people group as a group of people that's like a subset of the human race and because of their cultural similarities, messages can pass between the people within this subset without language barriers, without cultural barriers. Well, if that's true of English-speaking folk or, you know, Spanish-speaking folk, that's also true of millennials, particularly with technology and globalization, meaning messages can pass between generations without culture and language barriers, especially in America, because of how those generations were shaped during their coming-of-age years. So if we can acknowledge ethnic people groups, and if we're willing to accept generational people groups, then in the same way we use language to reach ethnicities is the same way we should use language to reach generations. And then that challenges us as preacher and communicator to realize that the generation I'm currently reaching is because I speak their language, not just because I preach the gospel, but it's because I speak the gospel in their language in the same way you know, I do from an ethnic ethnicity standpoint. Does that make sense, Aaron? Yeah, what, what comes to mind for me is a distinction that I, I picked up from Miroslav Volf. Uh, he said, there's a difference between being strange and being a stranger. Mm. There's got to be a piece where the gospel is heard as strange across the generations. And how it's going to be strange is going to be unique to different generations because mm-hmm. the the assumptions that they're making and, the, and really the world that they're living in, the culture that they're 
living and moving and interacting in is going to be different from one another. I mean, you know, you stop and you ask, does the gospel sound a little bit differently to the person who's retired, to the person who's trying to get out of their parents' home and get their first job? Well, yeah, in, in yeah. some ways, because we don't think the, the gospel is just a disembodied message. And I'm not going health and mm-hmm. health and wealth prosperity gospel here, but I'm saying there's a way that the good news starts to take root and have practical expression in people's lives. And so things that we just do, we know we've got to do this to people that we're comfortable preaching to is how do we understand the people that are also listening that we can communicate well with them so that they are excited about what they're hearing and that the strangeness of what they're hearing isn't just a sheer stranger speaking at them, right? There's a strange message, but they're not a stranger. They they have a sense of who I am and they have a sense of what my life is and and what my, what culture I've consumed and what culture I use to interact and discuss things with people, which, which is one of the things you emphasize that to speak across generations, you got to know some of their, their music and some of their movies and some of the, the idioms and phrases, but then you say, but it's, it's deeper than that, right? You got to push through. It's not just using a kind of lingo as though that's an automatic connection. It's understanding where it comes from, understanding why it's connected, understanding why it catches or doesn't catch for different generations. And so there's a relational aspect to it as well, especially as you mentioned of, of millennials that millennials can really sense inauthenticity pretty quick. You can't fake it, right? You can't you can't pretend that that you know the generation if you just don't have any friends that are in that age group. Yeah, let me jump in because you you brought up, I mean, what a powerful quote, this contrast between strangeness and a stranger. I think the gospel is inherently strange because it is anti-human nature. <laughs> the gospel is divine nature personified through Jesus and retold through the story about Jesus, which means that whatever human ears hear the gospel expressed, there is an inherent strangeness to it because it's (laughs) anti-worldly. You know, for God so loved that he gave Jesus, humbled himself to the point of a servant, pouring out himself, embracing death on a cross, this cursed tree, you know, he hung on, he, he tasted physical, literal death. And then he rose again, and then he ascended, and then he sent the spirit. So all of these elements that make up the gospel, and he's coming again, all these elements are inherently strange. Since the message itself is inherently strange to any human audience, the speaker doesn't have to be a stranger. Actually, what the speaker should be is a missionary to said audience, so that my peculiarities and preferences don't become an unnecessary barrier on top of the strangeness of the message to begin with. And we see this with Paul in Acts 17, right? He's in Athens on Mars Hill. Epicureans and Stoics are present. And because of their culture of hearing about new gods and unknown deities and their beliefs and points of views from being Epicureans and Stoic, Paul, he, he expresses as missionary to these Greek folk the gospel, the same is true, right? On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two. This message is strange, but God gives this miracle of removing the fact that the speakers would have been strangers because he he gives them this miracle of speaking fluently in known languages that they've never studied to remove the fact that they were strangers so that the people who were all over Jerusalem <laughs> could hear this strange new new message about the gospel. So the same is true, you know, when it comes to, to generations. 
how they heard it was not simply just an, an intellectual understanding. It was it communicated to them in their heart language, right? It was yep. the, the universality of the gospel was being carried forward and God miraculously brought that to be and yep. graciously invites us into the missionary spirit to understand the languages. As you say, each generation has its own language for us to understand the languages of the different generations. That's, that's God's gracious activity because that's who God is, right? God wants to communicate in this universal way that's specifically oriented to individuals. I would go back to St. Augustine when he says, God loves each of us as if there was only one of us. And yep. the challenge of the preacher, yeah, there's there's the tension of forming a congregation and the formation that's happening through the proclaimed word, but there's also the beautiful expression of God carrying that word to the individual as well. They're not simply a person lost in the sea of people. They are a community, but the community is also made up of individuals, right? Of, of people who are bringing their own hangups and hurts and, and brokenness and expectations and anticipations and hopes and how yeah. the gospel is going to intersect with that. There's a great phrase that the Lord has brought back to me a number of times, and it goes something like this, how easy it is to miss the opportunity because it just looks like hard work. Mm. Like you're giving us a resource that's like telling us the hard work, right? There's hard work to do here, but don't miss it because it really is opportunity. And the joy that comes through faithfully devoting ourselves to the Lord in this work is that we get to see and sense how the gospel sounds and what it, what it sounds like to different generations. But at the same time, that means that we get to know it better and deeper, not just in our own idiosyncratic ways, but in ways that other people are sensing it in their heart too. I mean, that's what a joy that is to understand the gospel in those myriad ways. Yeah, what a joy. It's definitely a joy because as we humble ourselves, when I say we, I speak of those of us who are preachers, teachers, the responsibility of communicating the gospel to any group on a regular basis. As we humble ourselves to study the people we're, since God is calling us to reach, the generations God is calling us to reach, any work we do to rediscover the gospel to your word, to your point, from their standpoint, all it does is broaden our ability to appreciate the beauty of the gospel. Here's why the gospel is so compelling, Christianity compared to other, other world religions, because the gospel is true. No matter the era, geopolitical boundary, gender, socioeconomic status, generation, ethnicity, I mean, all of these barriers that subdivide the human race, the gospel is as beautiful in every single scenario for all time uh, compared to any other, you know, message or, 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 or idea. So I believe that applies to generations. And I, I do. I agree with you, Aaron. I think that gives us an opportunity to see just how beautifully complex and powerfully compelling the gospel is. Joining us today is Dr. Daryl Hall. Daryl is the author of Speaking Across Generations, Messages that Satisfy Boomers, Xers, Millennials, Gen Z, and Beyond. It's published by University Press. Pastor Daryl, thank you so much for taking the time to invest in us today. Thank you for having me. Wonderful questions. Pray God's blessings on, on your audience. Listeners, you make conversations like this possible. The Wesley Seminary Podcast exists to introduce topics and resources for fruitful ministry, and I trust we have done just that today. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Thank you, Dr. Hall, for sharing your research, your wisdom, and your inspiration with us as well. Thank you, Connor, for being a great producer. I appreciate you being such a great teammate to me. Thanks so much, everybody. Trust you all to have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary. 